the Water Values Podcast, Session 24. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. And yes, that's still Joey providing the intro and outro voiceovers. So stay tuned until the end of the podcast to hear Joey's outro voiceover and the all-important disclaimer. Well, we had a great trip to Glacier National Park to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And I was able to check uh, going to Glacier off of my bucket list. I've always wanted to go there before the glaciers were gone, which some experts predict will be the case by 2030. We stayed at the Many Glacier Hotel, and they've got an exhibit in one of the hallways that shows pictures of the glaciers in the early 20th century and then a comparative shot in the uh, early 21st century. And the loss of glacial ice is absolutely amazing. You really need to see, see those glaciers in person. Uh, glacier's tough to get to, but it is well worth it. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, let's turn our attention to today's guest. Today's guest is a tremendous get for the Water Values Podcast. Michael Dean, the Executive Director of the National Association of Water Companies, joins us to talk about water issues, and in particular, water utilities in the private sector. Michael provides a great deal of insight into a number of issues that our water utilities face, whether they be municipally owned, not-for-profit, or privately held. And his wealth of experience, both as a private water policy expert and as a former EPA regulator who helped get the revolving loan fund program set up, really makes this episode chock full of good content. So I hope you take the time to listen to what Michael has to say, because it's all good stuff. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Michael, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for coming on, and we greatly appreciate your time. Uh, to start off, why don't you tell us a little about uh, your background and how you got interested in water? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's very uh, good to be with you this afternoon. And uh, I got interested in water as a, as a kid in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes. Uh, obviously, a lot of water, and uh, very much took it for granted. And uh, as, I, as I looked around a little bit, particularly back in school, I, I just happened to take a class in water and realize how important water is to where communities were uh, established, uh, how economies in those communities grew, uh, the importance into public health, and really got me thinking a lot more that uh, how central water is to so much of our life and our communities and our economy, and that intrigued me, and I decided to, uh, to jump in. Uh, I uh, started my career in water at the United States Environmental Protection Agency, helping setting up the State Revolving Fund Program and uh, the public-private partnership program there uh, in water infrastructure and have, uh, have moved on through, uh, through my career to work with private water companies. Uh, I've gone back to the United States uh, EPA uh, as well to, be, uh, uh, to work on uh, water infrastructure policy and financing, and now I'm very pleased to be with the National Association of Water Companies. Oh, terrific. How long have you been with uh, NAWC? I've been here just over five years now as executive director. Okay. And could you give us a little, uh, you know, a thumbnail on uh, NAWC's background and what its mission is? Uh, certainly. Uh, the National Association of Water Companies is uh, the association representing private water operating companies in the United States. So our members are private utilities that are fully owned and operated and provide water and wastewater services across the country. And our member companies also operate municipal systems under various types of public-private partnerships as well. Um, 
between all our business models, uh, private water companies uh, provide services, their water, wastewater to around 73 million Americans, so nearly a quarter of the population. Uh, um, we touch uh, one way or another every day. And uh, we really serve, we strive to serve to be a credible resource for anyone seeking information on the nation's water challenges and obviously very particularly the solutions that we believe the private sector can bring to communities to help address those water challenges. Okay, interesting. I, I want to get into the uh, some of the solutions you can provide, but before we do that, let's let's continue laying the foundation for uh, the you know what we're talking about today in terms of um, the the private side of the water utility business. And if you could just give us the perspective of the IOUs or the investor-owned utilities, what what's the water industry look like for them today? Sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, first, uh, uh, just reacting to something you said on the private side, and, and there are public and private sectors within the water industry, but increasingly I think it's very important that we all understand and we all work together, uh, and we do work very well with our public sector partners in the utility world as well as, you know, cities where our investor-owned utilities, the private utilities do their business. So um, while there's some unique elements to to the public and the private sectors and, and how they go about it, perhaps, and what they see, uh, I do believe it's important to to uh, acknowledge that we're all water professionals working together across the country to provide uh, uh, good service to, to Americans, wherever, whatever type of utility uh, happens to serve them. So that said, um, you know, the, the state of the water industry, we're all very much aware of the challenges, I think, uh, and, and they're talked about a lot. And, and to a large degree, that focuses on the infrastructure investment needed primarily to replace, rehabilitate uh, pipes in the ground, uh, uh, water distribution, wastewater collection, and uh, that gets a lot of attention. On uh, the treatment side, both drinking water and wastewater, sometimes less attention, but uh, it's important for you know all Americans to know that uh, we, along with the regulators, uh, economic, uh, public health, environmental regulators, are always working to to uh, um, make sure that we're getting the best protection possible. So uh, there's going to be increasing standards as well for drinking water and wastewater, which have clear uh, costs and um, the need for investment. So we look at all of that, and uh, and you know, I always see solutions. I know there's there challenges, but the good news is there's solutions uh, uh, on all of that. The um, private utilities on the infrastructure side. Um, face some of the same challenges depending on where we are. Aging infrastructure, uh, the, the high cost of replacing that infrastructure in, in very uh, uh, populated areas. Uh, and I think to some degree, I'd like to believe we're in better shape in the sense that when the regulatory process works well with our public utility commissions, we have in place a very transparent, accountable process for identifying what the needs are both for compliance as well as uh, customer service at the customer's demand, establishing what the prudent costs are to deliver that, and then establishing a, establishing a, a customer rate structure that supports that investment. And uh, that allows us, ideally, to kind of depoliticize uh, the process and, and, and make the investments that are necessary. So a lot of our companies, I think, are ahead of the curve on, on, on this pipe replacement uh, a problem that we often hear about in this country of 300 year on a 300 year replacement cycle. You know, a lot of our companies are, are much closer to kind of the conventional wisdom of, of ideal of a, a hundred year replacement cycle. Hmm, okay. Interesting. And, and just going back to a, 
a point you made. Uh, I wasn't trying to drive a wedge between public and private sectors, so oh, I, no, just no. Wanted, I just wanted to make sure that was clear. <laughs> no, no, I just took the opportunity. I took the opportunity to, and we, we do that as well. We contact with the public and the private, and, the, and again, there are these distinctions, but uh, there are those who do try to drive the wedge. So. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, real quick, what what are the your typical membership? What are the sizes of the utilities uh, and water professionals uh, organizations involved? What I mean, are we talking, um, you know, 3,500 customer, 10,000 customer, what, what's, what size of utility are, are typically members of NAWC? Uh, it, it, uh, it varies widely. Uh, as, as I hope, trust most of your listeners know, there's a large number of very small utilities in, in the United States. Uh, again, the numbers are hard to capture, but 50,000 or more community water systems, 16,000 wastewater systems. Kind of, we all know that many of them are very, very small. So the members of the NAWC range from very large multi-state utilities uh, that taken together would be our largest utility uh, serves more people than the city of New York, which is the largest public utility, but it's across about 16 states. So mm -hmm. uh, under that scenario, of believe it's 12 million customers or so. Uh, we also have customers or companies that serve 100 or 300 people as well in, in small in small communities across the country and uh, everything in between. Uh, okay. I, I, I was just curious because as you were ticking down that list of issues, it would seem to me that, uh, you know, infrastructure treatment and regulators, uh, those, those might impact the different, you know, the smaller utilities uh, in a different way than it impacts the larger utilities. And I'm just kind of curious what your perspective is on, on how those issues you, you had identified uh, are, are being perceived and uh, addressed by the various sizes of the utilities involved. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, certainly, uh in large utilities, there's uh, some benefits in, in economies of scale. There's a benefit in access to technology and expertise uh, internally and in the resources to find it uh, externally. Uh, and it is very different. We spend a lot of time with our economic regulators, the public utility commissions, trying to help them address small and very small utilities in their states, even if they're not members of the National Association of Water Companies. Obviously, many of those tens of thousands are, are, are not our members, but uh, they, in many cases, when they're private, they're regulated by the, the same commissions that regulate our large utilities. And uh, and we've spent quite a bit of time with them trying to figure out what are some of the both uh, regulatory uh, uh, efficiencies that can be put in place, some of the technologies may be in better shape, uh, better uh, applicable to these small communities. Uh, Certainly, when you get into treatment technologies, that can be a particular issue. Uh, as, as, as Safe Drinking Water Act standards um, apply to you know stricter and stricter and in smaller concentrations and new chemicals, the treatment technologies are getting much more complex. You know, this is no longer just trickling water through sand and charcoal and uh, this type of thing. It's often membrane, uh, nanofiltration, uh, highly energy-intensive types of technologies. That both are costly to implement and then have a need for particular expertise to to operate, and small systems uh, are just going to struggle with that. So, 
Um, there's no easy answers when you're talking about the small community situation, public and private. We work with uh, not just our economic regulators, but EPA and others to try to you know, help deliver some of those solutions and, and to to take what we know and learn and apply at the larger utilities and see if that can be scaled down, and if not, what some of the other maybe lower technology and ideally lower cost solutions would be as well. But even when you're just talking about the, the fundamental pipe replacement and infrastructure, it, it, it's much tougher to spread those costs across a, a small customer base. Um, simply because the costs of, of replacement infrastructure are, are just extraordinarily higher than they were 50, 60 years ago uh, to put to put a mile or a half a mile in a small case of pipe in the ground. Right, right. Um, what What's some of the low-hanging fruit that you've, you've seen smaller utilities take advantage of in terms of the technology and, and things of that nature? You know, I think some of our, our, our uh, best smaller utilities uh, – realize that they are different and that instead of scaling down maybe you can scale up we have we have uh, one uh, member company who's helped some other small companies say when we're facing for example arsenic which is you know a few years ago and still is in some areas of the country uh, you know a huge costly uh, potentially costly um, uh, treatment and uh there's a lot of debate in the regulatory side. Can in many cases, it is small rural areas where there's naturally occurring arsenic that needs to be addressed. And you know, how do you take some of these high technology uh, uh, systems and, and apply them and spread them across 30 or 40 uh, households in some cases? And you know, some of the really good ones sit there and say, you don't have to do that. You, you put in series a bunch of uh, uh, technologies, even that, as he says, you can buy at Home Depot. Uh, that are intended to be for one or two houses and put them in series, you can you can scale up. So I think it's really looking at um, how best to manage it and not just not just uh, getting very innovative. And that's what it needs to be, whether you're small or large these days, I think get innovative and, and not just get kind of the traditional way, the easy way we've always done it before. Um, and you know, it, it's... It's it's really it's really an effort to uh, find the particular needs for that particular location, and and customizing a solution for them rather than trying to force fit kind of the, the cutting edge technology or solutions into all cases. Mm -hmm. um, interesting. Now that you've, I think one of the solutions or what are your thoughts on, uh, given that there are as you indicated about fifty thousand or so privately held you know, water wastewater systems and that scale plays such an important role in terms of uh, getting those, you know, allowing technologies to be brought uh, to those smaller systems. Is consolidation something that you see is going to accelerate in the future or what, what is, what's your perception on uh, consolidation in the industry? Yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 water professional in me says consolidation needs to occur broadly, and this is this is not just with public or public or private utilities, but also public utilities. Many of those fifty thousand are are public as well, uh, and uh, I personally believe that that needs to be a, a big part of the answer. And it's very, very difficult for a number of reasons. I mean, politically, it's hard to discuss at times, and and I think. 
various agencies from EPA when I was with the United States EPA as well. It's to try to talk about the solution for your community is consolidation when people are very proud of what they've been able to do with their water system and, and or historically provide water to themselves and their neighbors and, uh, and wastewater service. But uh, the challenges that we're facing going forward, uh, I, I believe are gonna require much more serious consideration of, of consolidation. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical interconnection uh, we've got some places where you know, the, the utilities are, are dozens, if not hundreds of miles apart. But from a managerial standpoint and, and, and administrative standpoint and financing standpoint to try to consolidate them, uh, I think is critical. We, I, just, I just got back from a meeting of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, or PUC regulators. And this, this as always, was a major topic of discussion. And we're seeing some of the states really uh, aggressively try to identify how they can work with their small utilities to identify potential uh, acquirers uh, to start consolidating. And uh, that doesn't answer all the, the questions. If, you, if you're a small system and, and you require a $500,000 solution for 30 uh, households, uh, simply being acquired by a larger company doesn't necessarily answer that but there are some things you can start doing to spread this cost perhaps around the, the, all, the, all the utilities system in the state. Again, bring in some expertise uh, to, to, to lower the cost to some extent, but uh, it, it's, I won't say it's an intractable issue, but it's, it's a very serious and difficult issue that the nation is facing. We talked a lot about the cost and expense of replacing infrastructure, and that naturally results in rate increases. What are you seeing out there in terms of cost recovery and rate increases for your membership? It's uh, unfortunately in everything water. It depends. It's all <laughs> it's, you know. It's all over. It depends where you are. But it, clearly across the country, we're seeing the need for for the people need to pay more for to receive value and the benefits that they get for their water and wastewater services. And um, whether it be private or public, you're seeing I think finally in the last few years, some significant rate increases to, to make the investments that are necessary. The governing bodies, public utility commissions for the private companies, city councils or other governing bodies for municipal or county or other systems are realizing that this investment needs to be made. Uh, you need to make sure you're making it as prudently and as efficiently as possible. Uh, I don't recall the, the, the overall what we're seeing is kind of an average national cons, uh, consolidated increase in rates, but I do know from AWWA and other surveys that it, that it is going up, you know, significantly greater than inflation, uh, and to try to, to make up the disinvestment that we've had in, in the past. So uh, I think it's incumbent on all of us in, as water professionals to, to be as efficient as possible in operations so that every dollar of revenue we get through customer rates uh, that we can invest in, in the capital investment that we do and, and, and not pay it in, in uh, you know, inefficient operations. So I think it's going to be increasingly important in this rising cost environment that we face, uh, again, because of the need to accelerate pipe replacement to address new uh, public health and environmental standards, uh, and, and not least of which is customer service expectations as well. Uh, you know, large parts of the costs are, are in order to be able to provide the service, not just the quality water that people want. And um, that is going to be reflected in rates, as, as, as you say, and uh, needs to be reflected in rates. And the challenge that we face in the water industry is, is getting people to understand that, that those rates 
are not just rates, they are investment by the beneficiaries of these systems and, and the value that they and their families and their businesses and their communities receive uh, for keeping these systems uh, operating and, and safely and reliably. Yeah, Michael, I just think you hit the nail on the head right there. Public education, uh, to me, is one of the biggest issues that we need to uh, overcome in the water sector. Um, do you have any thoughts about what what you've seen that has worked in public education about water systems, and what can we do better in that area? I think there's a lot we can do better. I I don't think it's a surprise to anybody in the water industry that we've been you know we call ourselves a silent service. We've been proud of that over the decades. Uh, we've been very effectively in this country for not just the forty since forty years since the Safe Drinking Water Act was put in place or. 42 years now since the Clean Water Act uh, initially was put in place, but for decades and, and even centuries before that, uh, I've been working very hard to 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 just deliver the service and um, make sure that people are happy with it and, and can afford it uh, and kind of leave us alone to do our business. You just you benefit from what we deliver, which is clean water and taking away the dirty water. Uh, I think we were too successful in, in that we let people think it was easy, uh, cheap, costless. Um, and, and now the challenge is not only to, to let them know what it takes to deliver that, but to transform ourselves to be, be kind of proud deliverers of it news <laughs> as opposed to, as, you know, as opposed to feeling badly about it. It's, we need people to understand this. We need to speak in a different way that resonates with them. I like to say people, when we talk about infrastructure, that's our business and we need to invest in infrastructure. But I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over when you talk about infrastructure is that somebody should be taking care of that. The utility should be taking care of that. Um, and and what people really value is what they receive from that infrastructure, right? Which is, which is again, their children are healthy, can go to school, their employees are healthy, can come to work, they're not sick from waterborne diseases. Um, and I'm not necessarily just talking about what we see in developing countries, it's just the ability that you can go anywhere in this country and 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 know that you're not going to to suffer from that. Uh, the build the reliability of water, if you're a small business and, and you rely on water for production, uh, that's critically important. If you're down for a week because your water main is gone, your people are out of work, you're out of production, that is serious uh, uh, blow to a small business. Um, you can go to the parks in the afternoon and you know, wade in the stream with your, with your kids and not worry about what's in that water. Uh, th those, are, those are things that people value. Uh, and they see they, there's a disconnect between that and the infrastructure, the pipes, the treatment plants, the, the the impoundments to collect that water before it comes to you, and we need to we need to do a much better job of articulating that that is what delivers that value to them. Sure. What are some strategies that you have seen that have worked that have have uh, you know gotten the point across yeah. and and help help get the message out? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the, the getting the point across. Getting the message out and then getting people to understand the personal kind of responsibility for that is, 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 is the toughest step. For example, there's some great uh, exhibits and utilities, public and private across the country, that people can come in to, to the water treatment plant and look at where your water comes from, what it goes through, uh, and, and how it's delivered. And that's kind of in the front room, the visitor center. And then lots of utilities do tours. 
And I think that one of the first things that people say, if you take them to a, a water wastewater treatment plant, they look at huge, big computer control room and huge, big tanks and huge pumps. Their eyes kind of get a little wide and kind of go, wow, <laughs> this, this must cost a lot of money to, you, you know, yeah. yes, it does. It's not just a pond and a pipe. And uh, so it's, it's, it's getting out there and doing that with them. I, we're, we're trying to do a better job as an industry to, um, more broadly get that message out. Uh, you, I hope you have heard of the Value Water Coalition that uh, NWC and other water associations and, and some large water uh, uh, sector companies have established uh, to try to get out a broader message, both at kind of a national media level, public policy makers, and also um, materials that utilities can can use with their customers uh, uh, as well, although a lot of utilities are doing a lot a lot of work with their customers. I think it helps that people understand it's a broader national issue. It's not just a local issue, and, and we all need to to to, to work together. Um, some of the other things I think are good is is you know I've seen people take tours up into the watershed. You know, take a bike tour up the pipeline and see where it goes, and 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 really getting people to connect. But then the big, I won't say missing piece, but then the toughest piece is they they all appreciate that and understand that, and then have to start feeling good about paying their water bill to make the investment necessary to continue to receive all of that. I, I think we often forget whatever community you're in, we are benefiting from investments that have been made over the last 30, 40, 50, 100 years by people before us, whether we are our families before us or our neighbors, and they made those investments. And, and then we need to continue to make that both for our own good, but also to kind of you know pay it forward, as as, as they say. Is these are living, uh, ongoing systems that are the lifeblood of our communities, and and when people understand that and their role in it, and you talk with them and are transparent about it and accountable for where those dollars are going, not just hey we need to raise your rates. Why do you need to raise our rates? Here's what we're doing with your money, and here's what the result is going to be. It gets into communications that you talked about that are so critical. So we're starting there, but there's a long way to go. Sure. Very well said, Michael. Very well said. Um, let's pivot and talk about uh, the role of the federal government. We, you know, you, you've indicated water is a very local thing, uh, but the federal government does play a fairly large role in it. Uh, and you, you mentioned your experience with EPA. Can you talk a little about the role of federal government in, uh, in water? Well, certainly. I mean, obviously, one of the first and foremost ones is through the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, which is you know this nation coming together uh, through the political process uh, to to uh, determine that we need to to as a nation uh, keep water uh, clean and safe in the environment. Kind of the, the fundamental goal of the of the Clean Water Act, uh, so that it can be, as they say, you know, fishable and swimmable. Uh, and under the Safe Drinking Water Act, make sure that people uh, are that consume water, which is all of us every day, uh, are safe uh, in in doing so. So, working through the process, and we, you know, we and the states and public and private utilities and and others work with EPA, the federal government, all the time on an ongoing basis to determine how best you know what what needs to be done and how best to do it, uh, how to do it most cost effectively. And, and to have EPA uh, and the federal government lead that is, is critical. Now, coming out of that, of course, is all the needs for the investments at the local level. And, and, and at times, the federal government has, has been a, a key player 
in, in those investments, primarily under the Clean Water Act, starting in 1972 with a, with a, a grant program to help communities build wastewater treatment plants, uh, which was a which was a critical uh, a critical step in that. Before that, most wastewater was collection and maybe very minimal treatment. Uh, uh, and when the nation decided we needed to treat that waste before discharging into into, into waterways, um, the federal government made a commitment to, to help communities with those investments, and has moved on to the state revolving fund program. As I mentioned, I helped establish at, at EPA many years ago now uh, to provide low interest rate assistance to try to to lower the cost and to to try to. Uh, uh, make sure that it's affordable to communities. So there's a there's a financial uh, funding element for the federal government as well. The state revolving fund programs continue. Uh, in, the, in 1990s, one was established for the drinking water as well. And there's a role to play for the federal government to play. Uh, and it's always been a relatively minor role. Communities and, and companies, in our case, uh, and, and, the, and the customers are the primary uh, funders of this and always will be and should be. Again, we're the beneficiary. We, companies, we, I as a consumer, as a customer uh, in the community, uh, are the beneficiary of that. But uh, the federal government, I think, has a role in being able to help direct the future of, of where investments should go. You may have seen a bit of a pivot in the last few years from EPA on SRF towards green infrastructure and are there better ways and new ways of dealing with stormwater discharge forever, which has huge water quality impacts and, and kind of pushing towards uh, the cutting edge. I personally believe that's, that makes a lot more sense than uh, a federal subsidy dollar going to replace a pipe that's been in the ground for 70 years that we've always known needs to be replaced. Uh, ideally, the utility and the customer should be able to be prepared to do that. But if we're looking at um, new new types, new directions, the federal government can help and kind of nudge us in, in that direction. I think that's critically important. More fundamentally on, 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 on the water financing, Certainly for the private utilities and for the public-private partnerships that, that we undertake with, with uh, municipalities, uh, there's a leadership role the federal government can take in, in saying this is the future, that the challenges we're facing require a much more collaborative approach, a mix of, of public investment and private investment. And, and we're, we work um, quite hard and well with the federal government to try to identify barriers to bringing more private investment into, into infrastructure, not just in our own companies' systems, but into communities where they still own the systems, but private partners can operate them and make the capital investments uh, with them or, or for them over a long period of time. So um, a lot of those are too arcane to talk about today, but they're, they're really about uh, you know, removing barriers in the tax code that uh, were put in place for very good reasons at some time, but uh, in this day and age are, are just obstacles to the way we need to finance going forward. Sure. And I, I think one of the uh, potential fruits of, of your efforts um, in terms of federal legislation was the recently enacted uh, Water Investment um, or Water Infrastructure Finance and Investment Act. And how how are the uh, IOUs reacting to to the implementation of WIFIA. Yeah, so WIFIA is uh, it's an innovative, you know, approach to uh, to investing in infrastructure, and you know, the, the idea is to try to help fund uh, federal assistance, whether it be low interest loans or loan guarantees or other credit assistance, model that um, under the transportation TIFIA program, uh, to 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 
try to bring additional investment into the nation's water and wastewater. So NWC in, in those deliberations was was uh, uh, consistent on a couple of uh, couple of things. One of which is uh, this program should try to bring in additional capital that otherwise would not flow into the water sector, uh, and 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 it's not just be a replacement. You know, we don't want to. 100% municipal bond financed facility or 100% ESRA funded facility now simply being financed with 100% uh, uh, assistance from the WIFIA program. And I think that it does that with the with the limitation on 49% of the project costs coming from WIFIA, which requires communities uh, or private companies to, to look for additional sources of funds. So I think that's, that's an important, uh, important point to make is that the, the this can engender more partnerships. Now, clearly, just private water companies are eligible for WIFIA, as are municipalities and other public entities. But it's clearly the interest that we're seeing is in in more partnerships. How can you perhaps get a WIFI loan for part of it, SRF loan for part of a project cost, and perhaps private capital as well? So we're interested and intrigued. The EPA is starting a series of listening sessions uh, next week. Um, and Chicago is the first one to figure out how to structure this and how it's going to work and what is the interest and and how can they make sure they structure the program that will facilitate some innovation in in, in these projects. So um, we're, we're we're hopeful that working with them and others, we can come up with a, a, a WIFIA structure that will allow private sector to bring the kind of innovation and additional private investment. Uh, into into municipal systems across the country as well as our own systems. Right, terrific answer. Um, and do you want to say anything about the uh, the 40th anniversary of the Safe Drinking Water Act? Oh, sure. Just I, I do want to recognize that uh, you know we often take a lot of things for granted, and uh, certainly our friends at the EPA are working with us and, and others in the water sector to try to, to to really take note of the success of the Safe Drinking Water Act. Uh, it was passed in 1974 to protect public health by regulating the nation's you know, public drinking water supply in communities across the country. And, um, and it, as a direct result of that, uh, you know, the United States enjoys some of the safest drinking water in the world. So um, we are particularly proud and invest our own utility uh, community that uh, uh, you know, some research, including by American Water Intelligence a couple of years ago, shown that we have an absolutely near-perfect, as they put a record, in, in compliance with the Safe Drinking Water Act. And that is a direct result of everything we've been talking about here, David, which is the kind of the partnership between regulators and utilities and our customers at the end of the day to make the investment necessary to bring this forward. So I think we can celebrate, and certainly at the NAWC annual water summit in, in October in Fort Lauderdale, uh, October 5th through 8th, we're going to take the opportunity to celebrate the successes that we've made uh, together uh, over the last 40 years, but also acknowledging that we can't take that for granted. And as I said before, we are, that is a result of investments and decisions and hard work made by our predecessors. And now it's our turn as, as water professionals and as customers to, to kind of roll up our sleeves and look at the challenges which are going to be different going forward in the next 40 years. Um, fortunately, we're looking at a much more integrated management of water. You know, we still have a state drinking water act and a clean water act, but we're looking, we understand more than ever the interconnectedness is all, of all of this. And as we address those challenges in the time of increasing cost environment, as I said, it's, it's, the costs are going to be even more than they were before. And how do we make sure that we continue to make the progress that, that we've made? So, We'll be talking about that at our at our, our session, but I think it's it's easy in a celebration to kind of rest on our laurels and say, look what the good things we've done, uh, and and we should, 
and Michelle, uh, but I think even more importantly, we're going to take that and, and be proud of it and, and, and build on it to, to make sure that we can continue to, to provide safe, reliable service to Americans in every city and every community uh, every day. Michael, I just want to thank you for your thoughtful and balanced perspectives and sharing those with us today. Uh, to the extent you'd like to send people to learn more about the National Association of Water Companies and what your your organization does, where would you send them? Well, these days, everyone goes to the web, right? So uh, <laughs> join us. Uh, I'd be pleased to have you anyone join us at, uh, at our website at nawc.org. Uh, we're also on Twitter at um, Moving Water Forward, and that's moving without a G, Moving Water Forward because of Twitter's uh, uh, Length, yeah. We're also on Facebook at National Association of Water Companies, and uh, and uh, always feel free to, to call us as well. I'll even put my number out there for you 202 379 2329, and happy to hear from anybody. Terrific, thank you so much, Michael. Really appreciate it. All right, thank you very much, David. You bet. Well, that was my interview with Michael Dean of the National Association of Water Companies. A big thank you to Michael and his director of communications, Mary Beth Longini, for their time and effort in getting this interview scheduled and done. They were fantastic to work with. And a quick point about the NAWC's Twitter handle. As Michael and I discussed, it's at Forward, and that's at Movin without a G, H2O forward. At Movin H2O forward. So follow them on Twitter. They're a great follow. Well, here are my key takeaways from the interview. First, it was refreshing to hear about the NAWC's assistance that it provides to some of the utilities that are having trouble coping with a number of water quality problems and the like. The NAWC isn't just looking out for the big guys. They're helping smaller utilities as well, even if they aren't members of the NAWC. We're all in this together, and I think the more we can help out our neighboring utilities, the better off we're all going to be in the long run. So it's it was great to hear Michael uh, talk about that. And his, his example of using uh, water filters purchased at Home Depot and placing them in series to remedy water, water quality problems, that really stood out to me as a poignant example of the type of health and creative thinking that we need to solve some of our uh, problems related to water. My next takeaway builds on prior conversations we've had here on the podcast, and that's getting the rates needed to sustain our water utilities. The water infrastructure we've been able to build in this country is absolutely amazing, but we need to fund extensions and replacements for it, and that takes money. So it's heartening to hear Michael indicate that he's seeing that rate increases to pay for that infrastructure have started to gain steam in the last few years. The final takeaway I'll offer here is Michael's perspective on funding infrastructure through government programs. His statement that federal funding for new projects and technology makes more sense and for replacing aging infrastructure caused me to think on that after the interview was done. And I think Michael's right. I think that the pipe that's been in the ground for 70 years, as he used as an, as an example, you know, that should be replaced by the users of the system without subsidy. The users on that system get the benefit of that pipe, and they should pay for its replacement. But when it comes to kind of cutting-edge projects and new technologies, I think, there's a, I think there's another benefit that merits uh, providing somewhat of a subsidy for that. You know, technologies are most expensive when they're new. And we've seen this time and again with consumer products like electronics. Remember how expensive VCRs were when they first came out and how quickly the price dropped once the technology matured? And for you younger folks, VCR stands for video cassette recorder. I think the same thing can be said 
for new technology in the water space. By subsidizing new technology, we're helping to speed the widespread adoption of that technology, and therefore the project really benefits everyone be, because it's allowing that technology to to mature and to be brought to the consumers um, faster than it might otherwise uh, get to consumers if we relied solely on private investment. So the subsidy in that case makes sense to me because the project benefits everyone. So I think Michael was right on about that point. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 24. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, all of which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.